Welcome to Bible Quest, the Wednesday edition. It's good to see everyone on today. Jeff, I thought you were leading us off because you had last word, so I'm sorry about that. But joining us is Jeff Smelser. Um, how are you doing, Jeff? You're right. I did. I did take the last. So we to explain to the audience, whichever one of us is going to start the, the the webcast, you know, say the initial, make the initial comments, has the last word before we shut off all the cameras and uh, microphones and everything. And I guess I claimed last word today and I wasn't thinking I'm not the one kicking it off. You are. Sorry. No, about you're, that. no you, you're good at being first among us. So it's all fine. <laughs> it's all good. Uh, no, I'm teasing. Okay. But, uh, so just a little bit more uh, behind the scenes stuff. I think we're good on Facebook today. I did have to go in and, and um, it, 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 it certainly did. It automatically changed its private, but I think we're good. Do you see us there? Uh, I do, yes, but I will double check on my end to make sure other people can see right. it as well. Okay, great. And so if anybody, tell you, anybody out there who's watching on Facebook, if you can just send us a note, um, let us know we're there. All right, I'll quit messing things up now. <laughs> no worries. Thank you, Jeff, for taking care of that. Uh, Drew DeGrado normally takes care of a lot of this stuff for us, and uh, he's doing a good work in the um, Honesdale, PA, Scranton area. So he's doing a lot of good Bible teaching down there. That's why you, you all haven't seen him behind the scenes on the Wednesday show, but we, we definitely appreciate him. He's still in charge of getting this up. If you're someone that listens to this after the fact, maybe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or some of those places, that's all Drew. Drew, Drew does all that for us, and we're very grateful that he does that. Um, so, yeah, so that that's kind of where Drew has been. Oh, and afterthought, uh, we also have Joe Works joining us. Uh, Joe, how are you today? I, I was just getting ready to go take a nap, but that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, man. I'm teasing, of course. Joe, it's really good to have you on. Uh, we're going to continue our study on the fruit of the Spirit today. Uh, this has been a really fun study for us, and I hope it's been a good study for you all as well as we've been slowing down and talking about these attributes. One of the things we've been trying to emphasize as we've been going through these is how much of a choice each of these are. As we've talked about love and joy already, those are not just passing feelings that you have as much as uh, a lot of the world tries to convince us that that is the case. That's not true. Uh, the world likes to think that they just choose or excuse me, uh, feel love, but love is a series of choices and sacrifices that we make for other people. Um, and so the same was true of joy. We talked about that last week from the book of Philippians and um, kind of that Paul was in these circumstances that he could not control. And yet over and over again, he was still making the choice to rejoice, even in those hard moments. Um, talked about the brethren in the book of Hebrews, that they received joyfully the seizure of their properties. And Jesus, when he endured the cross, he uh, was able to do so for the joy set before him. And so another choice he had to make. And today, uh, peace is going to be another one of those things that we see is, is a choice to make when things are hard. And as we've been doing with the rest of the, uh, the these studies so far, I just want to start by floating it out there. Guys, when you hear the word peace, what comes to your mind? Just throw out the first thing that comes to your mind. War. What, what did war? You say? Oh. War. The, the opposite yeah. of peace. Uh, okay. I think generally the people would think of peace and war, or maybe the book War and Peace. So, so okay, so that's, yeah, so you, you, the first thing that comes to your mind is the opposite of peace. I get it. Well, and just trying to define it, I think a lot of times I try to define words by thinking about what the opposite is. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I think that, that's helpful. Uh, Jeff, what, what comes to your mind when you hear that word? Harmony. I go with a synonym. Um, if you're at peace with somebody, 
Now I'm going to go with Joe's idea. There's no conflict. <laughs> yeah, peace. I, I think one of the words I think about is tranquil. Um, maybe even a word that comes to my mind is meditate. Just kind of a, a self-state of just peacefulness is what comes to my mind. Um, now, guys, I'm going to ask it a different way like I've been doing. How does the world define peace? Hmm. Uh, maybe like a, uh, a calmness or, uh, just getting along. Uh, okay. Yeah. So getting along, I think another word I'd throw in there is tolerance, um, oh, yeah. that we can, we can be at peace if we just tolerate one another and that's, that's the extent of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Excellent. Um, how about just no conflict? maybe running away from conflict might be another way to put that. I think that is the way our world is really starting to see peace where we just show up. We don't communicate, but rather we just get away from that person that's causing us that, that uh, toxic relationship is is sometimes a word that's used. And so we just run away. That's how peace is accomplished. So, yeah. So what you're saying is avoidance kind of is a tactic. Thank you. People want, I've got to have peace. I'm going to avoid you know, people I don't like, whatever. Yes. Avoidance, I think, is, is another great synonym for peace as far as the world goes and as far as the world is concerned. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think it's just helpful to realize that as Christians are striving for peace to, to have the fruit of the spirit, we're at odds with how the world defines these things. Um, and so we need to be vi- vigilant about that. Um, so, so far, guys, uh, this has been a good study, a good series so far. Well, let's try and keep that going. And let's just start by defining um, kind of the first time that peace was interrupted. Because as I think about peace in the Bible, one of the first places my mind goes is the Garden of Eden. Uh, I think about what that would have looked like. I try to imagine what it would have been like to have been man, to be in the garden with God. Uh, That's one of the things that's emphasized is that God was dwelling there in the garden with Adam and with Eve. And just thinking about the peaceful nature, the tranquil nature of the garden. But what do we know that happened as soon as Genesis 3? What, what interrupted that peace? Sin. Sin entered the world. Uh, the serpent weaseled his way in. He gets in and he deceives Eve. Um, and then she deceives her husband. And they both fall short of the glory of God by sinning, by transgressing against God. And things are no longer peaceful anymore. You know, Adam doesn't feel at ease with God. He's hiding. But I think the most stunning uh, description of what's happened to the relationship is in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 23, where it says, therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden, uh, verse 24, so he drove the man out. And and it always comes to my mind that the language that's used there in, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament is the same language that's used when Jesus drove the money changers out of the temple. Um, and that just kind of brings to mind the idea that there was no peace between man and God after the sin. And, and, and coupled with that, you have that flaming sword. You know, again, I, I come back to that idea of war. Um, uh, you know, there is uh, the, there's there's not a an opportunity to restore that, at least not on man's part. Um, he is driven out and there's a barrier there. A flaming sword is put in, the, in its place. There's no peace at all. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that till you guys brought it up, but this is the first place that we see like a weapon uh, is mm. in verse 24. 
And it's as a result of sin. It is there, of course, as a defense mechanism to to keep man out, I think, is the picture, because now there's no longer peace. Sin has interrupted that peace. Um, so excellent. Moving into chapter four, does it get better? Uh, no, it just continues. Uh, yeah. And it's and it's not so much uh, no peace with God. I mean, that's still there, certainly. But who who is there no peace between in chapter four? Well, because Cain kills Abel. So yeah. when man is not at peace with God, man is doing his own thing. He's following after the flesh. The works of the flesh are going to be the opposite of peace. And Cain kills Abel. Yeah, exactly. So you have the first conflict between man where there is no peace. And what happens as a result of their conflict? What happens to Cain? You're driven away. He's driven away too. Do you guys kind of see the the, the rhythm here now? Uh, yeah. When there's no peace, it, it's getting driven away. It's there's separation. And I think about Isaiah 59, one and two, um, but because of our sin, there's a separation between us and our God. That That's what's caused this great divide between us. Would it be fair to uh, classify Genesis four as an example of the two greatest commandments being broken? Because Cain doesn't love God with all of his being, he doesn't offer up the right sacrifice. As a result of his uh, broken relationship with God, he takes it out on his fellow man and doesn't love his neighbors himself. I have not thought about applying those two verses here and looking at them there. That's that's a really great point. And when both of those two commandments are broken, it it all falls apart. Um, Yeah, excellent point. So, guys, as we move through the Old Testament, the problem of sin and specifically no peace with God is what's being addressed. We move into the book of Exodus and there is God getting his people out of Egypt. And then shortly there into the book of Exodus, giving them commandments on how to build this tabernacle so that he can dwell with them again. But God is there. But is God really there there? No, that there's still it's, it's not a perfect situation. Not just anybody can walk into the tent where God dwells. And the whole time they're in the wilderness, even into the United Kingdom, when they conquer the land and take it and David tries to build the temple, then Solomon eventually builds it and the temp- and it moves in. The spirit of God moves in in first Kings eight. There's still some separation between God and his people. Uh, there's only a, one person that can enter into that place once a year for the sin and atone for the sins of the people, the high priest. And so things are still imperfect. And so if we can kind of insert some of the prophets here that pick up on this problem, what prophets would you want to reference to, to say that they're anticipating a more or a, a more better, excuse me, a better peace to come? Jeff, you're, you're muted, brother. Sorry. Okay. I'll, start, I'll start with Isaiah 9 uh, in this messianic passage where it talks about the child that's going to be born to us. A son will be given to us. This is Isaiah 9, 6. The government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Yeah. And it goes on in next verse, it says there'll be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. Yeah. And maybe Joe. while we're, while we're talking about Isaiah, um, uh, there's a pretty famous chapter in Isaiah, right? Uh, quoted so many times in the new Testament, but the chapter before that Isaiah 52 
How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says, as I on your God reigns. And then Isaiah 54, for the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you. And my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord who has compassion on you. So the, the chapter before and the chapter after Isaiah 53 has this emphasis on peace, good news, uh, salvation, covenant, um, everything that the Lord is seeking to, to offer. Yes, going at the beginning of the book of Isaiah, we'll kind of bookend it here. In Isaiah chapter 2, this is quoted also in Micah, as it talks about them all coming together on the mountain of the Lord. And Mm -hmm. one of my favorite things is that they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. They don't need any of that, but when? When is that going to happen? Well, it's when this Prince of Peace comes. The, the Old Testament anticipates a solution to the problem with no peace between man and no peace with man and God. So uh, Isaiah uh, 9, Isaiah 2, Isaiah 50, uh, 2, 53, 54, all discuss this idea. Excellent. Micah, you mentioned Micah has the same language as Isaiah 2. A little bit later on in Micah, in, in chapter 5, where it's talking about the one who's going to be ruler in Israel, will go forth from Bethlehem, Ephrathah. And so this is a prediction of the the birth of the coming Messiah in Bethlehem. In verse 5, it says, this one will be our peace. That's right. Yeah. And so this will be something that the New Testament looks forward to. Um, in Matthew, the second chapter in verse 6, it's where it's quoted that this, this Messiah would come from Bethlehem and he would be the peace that comes into the world. Um, if I'm not mistaken, that's part of Mary's prayer or song, rather, whatever you want to call it in the gospel, Luke. I'm speaking off the cuff right now, so I could be wrong about that. But um, Well, in, in Luke, the um, first chapter, um, no, it's actually, in, I'm not, you're on, you're on to something there, but what I was thinking of, you made me think of, it's actually in Matthew, um, in Matthew's account where the shepherds are in the, um, in the path, in the fields with their flocks. And where is it? Um, Luke two fourteen. glory to God in the highest on earth, peace among men. Okay. I was confused. Yeah. That's where it is. Sure. Sure. Okay. That's right. Because uh, Matthew's account doesn't tell of the shepherds in the field. He tells of the wise men. Luke tells of the shepherds in the field, right? Okay. Yeah, and in in in, uh, in Zacharias's um, whatever you want to call it in Luke one seventy nine, to uh, I forget where he's quoting from there, but it's to shine upon those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but I'm sorry, I went off the cuff there, guys. But my point is. By the time you get to the New Testament, in the early chapters of Matthew and Luke, everyone's kind of picking up on this Messiah's got the solution to the peace problem. Is that fair to say? Yeah. And and first of all, that peace problem is between us and God. But when we have peace between us and God, those of us who have that peace, then learn that peace, and it's reflected in our relationships with other people. 
you know, I, I always think of the passage in Romans twelve eighteen where Paul says, as much as in you lieth, be at peace with all men. The fact is, there are people in this world who are not following God's way, and they're not seeking peace. But it's the responsibility of the child of God to live in such a way that as far as he's responsible for it, his relationships should be relationships of peace. And the fruit of the Spirit includes this result, when we do what God's will is, this result is going to be manifest in our lives. We're going to have lives of peace. We're going to have peaceful relationships. And, and, and that peace is not just peace in, uh, in words or proclamation. I'm thinking about Jeremiah 6 and Jeremiah 8, you know, saying peace, peace when there is no peace. Um, you know, sometimes people are suggesting that there is a way of peace, even with God, that he hasn't authorized, that, that right. he doesn't sanction um, uh, and so the only thing that's uh, destruction and doom are going to be the result of that. So, so there's the stereotypical thing we've all heard. Well, I've made my peace with God. We've all heard that idea. And so often people who say that they've not, it's, it's a peace, peace when there is no peace. In other words, they're not living according to God's will. They've not been reconciled to God by the blood of Jesus, it, but they've just decided, well, God, you're good with me. <laughs> yeah. And it, and it's almost like they're using the wrong piece. It's like they're talking about P-I-E-C-E. Like I've just given my peace to God and they're not, <laughs> they've not really given all of themselves. It's like, no, your peace with God depends on you giving everything you have to him. Um, and yeah, I, I hear that phrase a lot and it scares me when I hear people say that. It's like, it's almost like they went to him to, to make a business contract and shake hands. And that that's not what we see. That, that really is powerful to, to think through the, the significance of that phrase. I don't, I'm sure I haven't thought of it often enough when people make that comment, but uh, Romans 5, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I, mm-hmm. I can't make peace with God. Jesus has done that on my behalf. Now, I have a role in that, but to, to think that somehow... I'm saying something uh, that is going to achieve that is. is yeah. Just- so, so there's a famous passage where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and life. No one comes to the father, but by me is John 14, six. If we go back to where Chase, you started with us in, in the garden in the beginning and man sinned and God drives him out. Man is not at peace with God, but the rest of the Bible is about God's plan to fix that. And God's plan is that gets fixed through Jesus. That's how peace is established. And what Jesus is saying in John 14, verse 6, is essentially there is no other way. You can't come to the Father. In other words, you can't have peace with God. And the passage you're quoting, Joe, in Romans 5, 1, we have peace through Jesus Christ. That's it. I can't be at peace with God unless it's through Jesus Christ. Yes, he, he's the propitiation um, is, I think, the word I, I, comes to mind in Romans 3.25. You know, you know, guys, there's actually something fascinating with that as, as we think about peace and Jesus being our peace. Um, do you guys remember the story in Genesis 32 where Jacob has left his father Laban's house? And on his, on, while he's on his way out, he encounters uh, Esau and he knows that Esau's coming. Do you guys remember this? Why was Jacob so nervous to meet up with Esau? Uh, because he thought it was going to be a Cain and Abel uh, reenactment. <laughs> yeah. The, the last time he saw him, he had to run away from him because he had just stolen the blessing. And Esau wanted to kill him. His parents literally said, leave because your brother's going to kill you. And you guys remember, what did, what did Jacob do 
anticipating meeting the wrath of his brother Esau. Oh, it's kind of funny how he sent a servant with uh, with gifts, livestock, and and the servant was yes. supposed to say, "This is a gift for you," and and your brother is right behind me. And then what came next was not Jacob, the brother, but what came next was another servant with more livestock and more gifts. Yes. And, and it's, okay, this is a gift for you and your brother's right behind me. And so you see this repeated gift offering and, and, it, and, and it's appeasing Esau's wrath. And you can just imagine Esau, the first gift, he says, ah, oh, he thinks he's can buy me off with these animals. And then the second gift, well, that is pretty cool. Okay. All right. I like the gift, but I'm still going to kill him. And then the third gift, <clears throat> and it's, hmm, well, maybe I won't kill him. And, and by the time you get to the end, it's like, no problem, brother. We're good. <laughs> yes. And I want, I want to zero in on that, the, the gifts there, because uh, I'm going to read from uh, the Septuagint here in Genesis 32. I want you guys to see how the Ch- Septuagint translates this. This is really interesting to me. Uh, and he charged the first and second and the third and all that went before him after these flocks saying, thus shall you speak to Esau when you find him. And ye shall say, Behold, thy servant Jacob comes after us. For he said, I will propitiate his countenance with the gifts going before his presence. And afterwards, I will behold his face for peradventure. He will accept me. I had the hardest time, guys, wrapping my head around what the word propitiate means for the longest time until I saw it in this passage. The idea is, is if Jacob can get together the right amount of gifts then when he gives them to Esau, his wrath will subside for the wrong that Jacob has done to Esau. And if you guys can just roll that over to the New Testament, because what's fascinating is that Greek word for propitiate in the Septuagint is the same word in Romans 3.25. That's exactly what's happened with us and God. God has wrath against our sin. We've done wrong against him. And we're left going, What am I going to get together? What am I going to use? What gift can I have to give to God so that his wrath will subside? And and of course, guys, the answer to that is nothing. There's, There's not a gift that we can come up with that will give us that peace with God and make his wrath subside. And then you insert Romans 3, where Paul will say, Uh, about Jesus Christ that God publicly displayed as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration. I say of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God said, I know you all aren't going to be able to come up with something. So here, here's my son. God gives the gift. And I think that is such a fascinating idea to to think about Jesus being that gift that God gives that we couldn't come up with. That's the idea of propitiation. The wrath of God is now satisfied because of his son going to the cross um, for us. So I I just, I love seeing the connection there between those two. Um, Jeff, am I off there? So that was interesting. Um, in, in the copy of the Septuagint that I have here, it's actually a compound version of that same word. So you have, and it's a verb, but it's, uh, it's the word exilosomai, 
which is a future first person middle, and that's more than you want to know. The point is, it's a verb, not not a noun, as it is in Romans 3. And secondly, it has the preposition attached to it. So it's not exactly the same word, but uh, I think you've got, I think you're on the right track there. I think that that is a good passage for illustrating the meaning of propitiate. And of course, we have the noun then in Romans 3. I believe it's a noun. I know it's a noun in the English text. Let me look at it in the Greek text while you go on and talk. Well, and I, I'm not trying to get too far away from peace, but my point is the only reason we're able to have peace with God is because he sent Jesus. Jesus fixed that problem. Um, and as a result of having peace with God, we can have peace with other people. Um, Joe, what, uh, what do you want to add on this? Well, just thinking about the, the sense of that propitiation or, or mercy seat in the, in the Old Testament, mm-hmm. the, the, the seat where you go to receive mercy. And so uh, we're not at peace in the sense of, two equals um, uh, finding a, a, a middle ground or something to that effect. We're going to the superior, uh, to the, the great uh, Yahweh, and seeking his mercy. And uh, that mercy seat is Jesus himself. Yeah. Amen. Excellent point. So for what it's worth, it's actually, uh, it's actually an adjective in Romans chapter 3.25, but it looks like it's being used as a substantive. I, I'll have to go back and look at that. But I, I really like that connection, Jess. I had not Joe, seen that connection. Joe is our Greek resident. Joe, do you have anything to add on that front? <laughs> Did you say Greek or geek? <laughs> I don't I don't think I would have said either in sincerity. <laughs> Thank you. Anyway, anyways. Um, so uh, just pressing on here, guys, as we, as we think about the peace we have with God that gives us peace with other people. And that's a really important point that Paul is trying to impress upon which two groups of people in the, in the New Testament. Jews and Gentiles. Yeah. I mean, you think about it, the Jews, worry about all the Jews in the Old Testament. They're the ones that are following God. They have Abraham as their father. Jesus comes on the scene and basically says, hey, that's cool, but none of that really matters. You need to repent. You need to believe in me. And then the Gentiles come on the scene and they start believing. And there's this conflict between these two groups of Christians because one was born with it. The other came later. And Paul deals a lot with that in Romans, but he also deals with it in the book of Ephesians. And after he has explained that Jesus died for us and everything that God went through to send Jesus into the world, one of the fallouts of Jesus dying for us, uh, this is in Ephesians 2 and verse 11. Paul will say, therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having it put to death uh, the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So they're now brought together. He'll go on to talk about them being God's household together because of the peace they have with God and now have 
with one another. I love the imagery there of the wall being taken down. Um, Jeff, I know your brother, Scott, after the wall went down over in Europe, that's somewhere he went and was able to go. So I know this passage, you know, he thinks about that a lot whenever he looks at this verse. But it's an amazing thing to see that there was nothing that could have reconciled these two groups of people before, but the blood of Jesus can. And we might look out, I know you guys uh, in the churches you're at, I think about the congregation I'm with or just brethren I know in general. There are some brethren I am very close friends with that, to be frank, if it wasn't for our bond with Jesus Christ, I don't know if I would have ever met them or I don't even know if I would have ever been friends with them or have grown as close as I have with them. But the blood of Jesus pushes me to them and I'm grateful for it. Yeah, when you think about the New Testament world and you think about Peter's statement when he comes to the house of Cornelius, a Gentile, and he says, you yourselves know it is an unlawful thing for a man that is a Jew to join himself or to come unto one of another nation. And then, of course, he goes on to explain God had shown him that he should not call any man common or unclean whom God cleanses. Um, and then we get to he, Acts chapter 11, and after having preached to the house of Cornelius and baptized them into Christ, he comes to the Jewish brethren in Jerusalem, and their reaction is, you went into men uncircumcised, and you ate with them. And you can see the, the division that there was between Jew and Gentile. Really, there was a, a racial division between them. And you can see that animosity and that, that separation. And yet now in Ephesians chapter 2, there is peace between Jew and Gentile. And you don't see in the first century uh, Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians worshiping separately, one side of town with a Jewish church and the other side of town with a Gentile church. No, they're all in the body of Christ together. And in any community where there were Jews and Gentiles who were both Christians, they're working and worshiping together. And um, they had to work at it. But that was a peace they would have with one another because they all had peace with God. Yes. Uh, I think about another group of people that would have to work through these feelings that Paul writes about and also specifically James, I think, writes a lot about are the poor and the rich brethren mm-hmm, in the local mm-hmm, churches. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, that would be a tricky thing because in some of the cases, is it fair to say some of them might have been slaves and some of them might have been masters? I mean, Paul writes about that in Ephesians and in Colossians on how they ought to behave and, and Philemon for that matter. And so it would have been a tricky balance for them to have that peace with one another while there was at the same time this, this real life working situation, uh, whether it was paying off debt or they were slave for whatever reason, they still had to find ways to have peace with one another because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And so uh, we're going to run into people all the time as Christians that it might be hard on the surface to have peace with, but that's what's expected of us. And so uh, do you guys have any other general thoughts or comments on that before I ask another question that should lead us through the rest of the, the episode? I don't want to be down. We, we, we're at, we only have 14 minutes left, so probably better move on. Well, my question is simply this. What barriers in the New Testament do you read about? That, or let me rephrase that. That was a really bad way to phrase that. What are barriers to peace? What does the New Testament say are barriers to having peace with other people? Selfishness. Okay, start there. Elaborate. Uh, things like maybe you, you just mentioned James. Uh, James 2, uh, verse 16, you say to your brother, go in peace, be warned yeah. to be filled, but you don't uh, do anything to help him. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, uh, I just 
if I'm constantly thinking about self, my needs and my wants, especially, then I'm not going to have peace with others. Insincerity yeah. would be another one. Proverbs 27, 6, deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. There's that super, superficial fake peace. Um, you, you act all nice to somebody, but then behind their back, you cut them down. Mm-hmm. And what might be some of the reason for, um, for being insincere, you think? Going back to, to, to Joe's uh, selfishness, that could be a part of it. A lack of love. Uh, I would say hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Uh, trying to, to, yeah, sorry, go ahead. I just said what a pride of wanting to exalt myself. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was going to go back to just for just a second, thinking about being insincere for hypocrisy reasons, trying to get other people to think that you're tolerable or trying to get other people to think that you are nice to other people when you're really not. That's, that's a huge barrier to peace. And that's, that's deceit is what that is. It's a lack of self-control. Um, uh, thinking about one of our first, uh, first part of this uh, program, uh, Genesis four, um, you know, sin lies at the door, um, but we need to master it. We need to have control. Lack of self-control. So that just reminded me of first Corinthians 11, whenever Paul has to get onto the Corinthians about not partaking of the Lord's supper in the right way. And you guys remember his solution for that? Because some are getting drunk. Others are eating to, to be full. His, his problem with them is that they're not waiting on one another to get there, uh, is at least how I take that passage. And so Paul is really getting after their lack of self-control. And there is no peace in that congregation for a lot of reasons. But one, they're not able to have communion together because some don't have self-control to wait uh, well, for the others to get there. I think you're right about that. But also in that passage, there's the fact that they're not focusing on Christ. Uh, yes. and, and, and the fact is, if you and I both focus on our obligations to God through Christ, then we're going to have peace with one another. But, but if one or both of us are more focused on our own agendas rather than on Christ, then our agendas are going to run into conflict, and we're not going to have peace with one another. And so in that situation in the church at Corinth, you've got people with their own agendas. They're wanting to just pig out. They're not thinking about Christ. They're being unthoughtful of one another. They're not waiting for one another. And you don't have a very peaceful situation in that church. Yes. Yeah. And, and so that to, down. That was a good thought. Go ahead, so to what extent do we, am I responsible for peace with my brethren? You know, how far, so sometimes you'll hear, they won't word it quite so bluntly, but how far do I have to go? Uh, you know, um, you know what, do I have to yeah. do everything in this relationship to maintain peace? Yeah. Excellent. Excellent question. Sorry. Go ahead, Jeff. I was just going to say, yeah, Joe, you do. <laughs> if you want to okay. have peace with me, you do everything. <laughs> of course, right, I'm speaking tongue in cheek here, but that's really the answer. I mean, you know, if, 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 if I'm condition my efforts on, on what I expect as a response if I'm not going to have peace with you, Joe, until I see you trying hard enough to deserve my kindness or whatever, well, I'm, I'm not. I'm not practicing the love that God has for us through Jesus Christ. I'm not practicing the love that Christ has, and and that's not enough. I have to. I have to do what's right no matter what. 
But but I, I mean, I, what, what if somebody does something evil to me? Then then I I'm not required, right? So how many times in the New Testament is Jesus held up as the example of someone who suffered evil at the hands of others, and yet he did not render evil for evil, did not revile for reviling? First Peter chapter two and Romans chapter twelve. That's kind of a theme. Yeah. Yeah. And Romans I, Romans I am, twelve. Oh, go ahead, Chase. No, no, no. You get you go ahead. I'll bring mine up here in a second. Uh, Romans twelve seventeen. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Uh, so, yeah, I, I need to give my all. I don't meet somebody 50-50. Uh, you know, it, as much as depends on me, everything that I can do, I'm responsible for. This is thinking about Peter asking Jesus how often should my brother sin against me and I forgive him up to seven times? It reminded me of the question that Joe started this whole uh, section out with is, well, how often do I have to put up with it? Or at what point do I give up? And you know, that, that that's the kind of attitude that we have. And I think Jesus would say to you, you know, get over it. That's part of being a Christian is, is dealing with one another, being patient with one another, having peace with one another. As, as long as it doesn't interfere with our meals. Right. Um, <laughs> for the for the kingdom of God is not food and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Hey, I see where you're going. You know, we, we need to, uh, I, you know, th- this is hard for me to say, but if it were necessary to maintain peace, I would give up bacon. Wow. You know, I mean, I kind of don't, I kind of don't believe you, but it's okay. Continue <laughs> for the you sake know, of, for the sake of the podcast, continue. Yeah. Yes. And of course so, the passage you talk about is Romans 14th chapter, where Paul is discussing the situation where there are some people who eat meat and some don't. And, and there's a problem in that those who don't eat meat are tending to, it sounds like condemn those who do. And those who do eat meat are tending to look down upon those who don't as if they're you know, they're just, they're just super conservative. They're just, you know, they've got a problem. And Paul is saying, look, the kingdom of Christ is more than that. And Paul goes on, he says he would give up meats if that's what is necessary to have peace. Yeah. Or or anything else. I mean, it is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine, nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Verse 21. Um, Go back to verse 19. Verse 19, so then let us follow after things which make for peace and things whereby we may edify one another. Mm-hmm. And yep. so while we live in a world thinking about very practical applications, we live in a world that is very divided about vaccines and masks and uh, the school system and, uh, and a lot of other things and, you know, donkeys and elephants and everything else. Um, we need to rise above that in the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. And, and- yep. And bacon's really not good for you anyway, Joe. Yeah. I, my theory is it prevents COVID, but anyway. <laughs> you know, yeah. Theories are just, they're true, right? That's what a theory is. So yeah, that's, that's my truth. Yeah. yeah. I had bacon so, lunch. The one thing guys, I want to make sure we touch on before we, before we uh, wrap up today is what Jesus said in Matthew seven in the Beatitudes: blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. 
uh, on the surface, I think that one's pretty well understood that we, we become the sons of God by being like our father. God made peace with us. And so we are his children when we are making peace and, and helping others to make peace with one another. And I'm specifically thinking about Paul with the Jews and Gentiles, but also in Philippians 4, the, the book of Philippians overall is an encouraging book, good truths in it. But there's one section where a, a bit of an, a nudge and encouragement in is, is given. You guys remember what that is in Philippians 4? I'm sorry. I was looking at one of the readers, uh, listeners' comments. I didn't catch where you were going. I called yeah, Philippians no four, but I didn't hear the setup. So this is in Philippians four, where Paul will say, "I urge Euodia and Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement, uh, Clement also, and the rest of the fellow workers whose names are in the book of life." And so these two women are, are having problems and Paul is encouraging uh, whoever this true companion or yoke fellow of, of his is and is saying, help me help them get along, be a peacemaker. Right. And there are going to be times as we walk with Christ and as we just work with other people where we are going to have to step in and humbly help other people. I think we are sometimes too quick because we are in, like we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, we're in such a non-conflict you know, society where, well, and we are in a conflict society at the same time. It's very interesting to me, but yeah. we're, oh, that's none of my business. You know, I don't want to get involved. You know, it's just, oh, that, leave that over there. But there comes a point in which it is healthy as brothers and sisters in Christ to step in and say, hey, let's work together on this so that you two can get along, so that you two can have harmony in the Lord, as Paul is talking about. And and I don't know where the uh, paragraph break would fit in that section in Paul's mind, but to me, it's helpful just to keep reading because whatever their conflict was, the solutions are, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord. Verse 5, let your gentleness be known to all men. Verse 6, don't be anxious for anything. Verse 7, the peace of God guide your hearts. And then verses 8 and 9, meditate on these things. And if Yodia and Syntyche would do those things, there would be no conflict. There would be no uh, problems between them that are everlasting. Uh, they would be able to have fellowship as the Lord wants. You have that sense of peace in verse 7, the peace of God. The end of verse 9 comes from uh -huh. the God of peace. Yes, excellent. And I mean, and if they're applying everything that's been discussed previously to this oh, point, yeah. Chapter two, where he talks about doing nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves, not looking out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. If they're having this attitude that Christ Jesus has and looking at one another, the, the peace will come. It'll be there. And we can redirect brethren to this passage uh, as we are trying to encourage them to get along with one another. But pe people are people. We're going to have disagreements. We're we're not going to think the same. God made us differently, and that, that's a blessing. So we, we ought not be shocked whenever there is turmoil or conflict, but it's, it's how we deal with that is what determines whether or not we're having the fruit of the Spirit or not. And that, that comes back to the matter of choice, if I can. You're going to have to make some choices in self-sacrifice and love and humility if you want to have peace with other people. And until you're willing to do that, you will not have this, this aspect here. Um, and so again, it's just, it's a choice.
Joe, or excuse me, Jeff, you were going to say something. I was just going to say, you know, having peace doesn't mean they're not disagreements. You were saying we're going to have conflict. Paul and Barnabas had a strong disagreement about whether to take John Mark with them in Acts chapter, at the end of Acts chapter 15 as they're about to begin that journey. And they ended up not agreeing. They went separate ways. And yet we don't see uh, bitterness between Paul and Barnabas thereafter. What you see is they had a disagreement. They went their separate ways. They, they did separate things. But Paul can still speak admirably of Barnabas later on. Uh, and, and so you, they could, it's, it's what you just said. It's just illustrating what you just said. Yeah, I think that's, that's exactly right. All right, guys. Well, we are out of time for today. Lord willing, we're going to pick up next week and talk about patience. And I know that's a topic I need to be able to talk about and need in my life. So I'm looking forward to talking about that with everybody next week. So Lord willing, we'll pick up in Galatians 5 then. Thanks so much for listening.